Well, thank all of you who come to the meetings um, so much for sharing your practice and for your questions that you bring. It's wonderful. It's a great blessing for me having practiced for so long. Sometimes I forget some of those questions. And so when you bring them and ask them, it's, um, it's just a very joyful experience of remembering, yes, these are the questions about this, que- about this practice, about our lives. And so I feel just grateful and appreciative to be able to be with you in this process and hear them. And in this talk, I'll address a few of them that came up today. And most of them were uh, the ones that I was reflecting on from yesterday and today, especially or along the lines of just our humanness and the relationship of our humanness to the teachings of no self and emptiness and um, the teachings of the Dharma. So, uh, so I really that's that's some of the theme of what I want to uh, take up this evening, and and it was very heart warming and affirming too to get I got a um, an email yesterday from a friend who had just returned from a teaching trip to Korea he had the great privilege to be invited to teach at a conference on um, Buddhist psychology meditation and psychotherapy and he said that I mean he sent some beautiful photographs of Korea I have been uh, privileged to travel to ancient Zen temples in Korea with my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanim, and uh, who was head of the Chogye order of Korean Buddhism. And uh, my friend, the psychologist Chris Germer, met with the now head of the Chogye order of Korean Buddhism, who said that many of the monks are now accepting that doing personal psychological work is very, very helpful to their practice. And I honestly thought, I am so glad I lived to see this day. (laughs) Because when I started out practicing, that was not the case. And I was, um, I remember being invited to speak at one of the very first conferences about Buddhism and psychotherapy. I was a psychotherapist. And the second one took place at Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, a monastery in Woodstock, New York. And the Rinpoche, who was the abbot of that monastery, here were all these professionals and clinicians descending upon his monastery for this conference. And so he, of course, wanted to welcome us. And so, but he didn't know anything about what we were doing, really. So what he came up with to welcome us, he said, I suppose there are a few unfortunate individuals who might need psychotherapy (laughs) before they are able to practice the Dharma. And that was his understanding of what it was for. And in my case, he was right. I was one of those poor, unfortunate individuals who felt so crazy in my 20s that I think I needed 
like two years of therapy before I could bear to sit with myself. And so in those days, to even to be in therapy and to acknowledge that to your sangha and to your teacher was to expose yourself to um, possible, I don't know, not being taken seriously at the least. And maybe some judgment <laughs> at the worst. Um, so to look into this, um, some of this relationship between our humanness and our Dharma practice. Um, I want to begin, though, by also uh, because I learned research has proven that you listen better when you hear something positive first. Um, so I'm actually going to start, I'm going to pick up a little bit on John's talk. Maybe if I get really um, lucky, I can link some of these teachings to what he taught about the 12 links, but that might be too ambitious. I know one thing that I want to begin with some uh, reflections on thanks, dot, 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 giving. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because it is that time and it is that retreat. I want to begin with a story, a story about Thanksgiving, actually, although not the holiday. Um, This happened, oh, maybe 11 years ago when my dad, uh, my dad was dying and he was in uh, an intensive care unit in a hospital in South Florida because he had been fishing with his brother and it just wound up that's where he got taken when he collapsed and so we were in that situation of you know, sort of camping out in this place where we didn't live and you know eating at Denny's and it was very very challenging time and I remember being in the waiting room the hospital ICU waiting room and you know everybody in that waiting room is intensely involved with somebody's suffering, if not their own. And yet there are the three stooges on the television, and it's just so incongruous and strange. And (laughs) I remember my mom and I were just sitting there in this kind of grief stupor state, and it was the three stooges actually um, on the television. And there were uh, a bunch of women, maybe four of them, can't remember, four or five, in the waiting room, and they were there visiting a sister from their church. They were representatives. They were sangha of the church, and um, they were quite ample women, and my mom was quite small, and they were kind of teasing her uh, about how thin she was. And anyway, she went to lunch to get some lunch, and I was alone in the waiting room with them, And they said to me, would you like us to pray for your father? And I said, sure, of course, thank you. I would like that. And then they proceeded to kneel on the linoleum floor, you know, this green room with the linoleum floor. And I was invited to kneel there too, and I did. And we all held hands, and we were kneeling on the linoleum. And they began to pray. And they began to praise God and thank God for all the blessings of being alive 
and thank you for this and thank you for that. I can't remember, but it went on and on to the point where, and I'm not, you know, really proud of this, but I began to get a little impatient and I thought, well, you know, what about my dad? (laughs) And (laughs) I thought this was to heal my father. And, you know, they're just getting more and more transported into (laughs) their gratitude and praise and thanks. And I'm kind of mentally, you know, drumming my fingers, um, but trying to stay with it. And then somewhere in the middle, they said, and uh, thank you, Lord, for healing Howard Goodman and for your healing of him. And and then I relaxed. Uh, And then they went on. That was sort of all there was about my dad. And then they went on just giving thanks, giving thanks, giving thanks. But because I had relaxed, I was able to really hear all of this thanksgiving. And it was such a profound teaching to me about uh, about gratitude and about um, offering thanks and about what it means to be healed. Because by the end of that prayer, I too was transported into that state of just pure gratitude. And uh, of course, my dad died, but they certainly helped me. And, and I learned something from them. And in the Pali, gratitude, the word is katanyu, and it means appreciating what has been done for us. So gratitude is actually a form of knowledge. And traditionally, it's appreciating our parents for giving us life. And, of course, as our um, children become parents, we can see them as they're being called upon to give more and more to their babies and their children. We can see them maybe begin to appreciate us a little bit, at least in some moments. Um, But... It's really a form of knowledge, of knowing what has been given to us and appreciating that. And I felt that that's what uh, the women were manifesting, demonstrating in that moment. And Thanksgiving is something a little bit different. It's like offering, you know, offering our thanks. Um, And in the Buddhist tradition, that fundamental gratitude, um, in the Tibetans, the Tibetan tradition, they call it uh, the precious human birth, that we appreciate our precious human birth. And the story, uh, I want to find it for you, what the Buddha said to try to bring this home to us, he said, monks, And that's all of us. When he says monks, he means practitioners. And that is all of us here, being here. He said, monks, suppose that this great earth were totally covered with water, and a man were to toss a yoke with a single hole, like a life preserver, you know, a ring, those donuts. 
A wind from the east would push it west. A wind from the west would push it east. A wind from the north would push it south. A wind from the south would push it north. And suppose a blind sea turtle were there. It would come to the surface once every 100 years. Now what do you think? Would that blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years stick his neck into that single hole? And then the monks answer, well, it would be a sheer coincidence that the blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years would stick his neck into that single hole. It is likewise a sheer coincidence that one obtains the human state. It is likewise a sheer coincidence that a Tathagata, a Buddha, worthy and self-awakened arises in the world. It is likewise a sheer coincidence that the teaching expounded by the Buddha arises, appears in the world. Now we have attained this human state. This human state has been obtained. A Buddha has arisen in the world. The teachings have appeared in this world. Therefore, your job is the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths, understanding how suffering arises, uh, that it's here, how it originates, how it ends, and the path that leads to that. This is a path of purification. In Buddhist psychology, the word um, purification it's actually almost like a technical term. You know, it, it means um, being purely present with experience. How do we purify our negative emotions? Not by getting rid of them, not by sweeping them under the rug, not by denying them, not by getting completely lost in them, uh, the daughter of a friend um, once made a tape called Music to Wallow By. <laughs> and she would play it, you know, when her boyfriend didn't call or when... So it's not actually to... It had Pachelbel's Canon. It had all these beautiful heart-rending songs. And not by wallowing, you know, immersion in them, getting lost in them, um, how do we purify them? How do we be purely present with them? Um, by knowing how it is for us, knowing what has arisen, uh, feeling it, having the courage to feel it fully. And when we bring our mindfulness and metta to the experience, lo and behold, it does transform does shift. So many of you have reported this. I was so crazy when I got here, and now it's quieted down. I was so upset before, and now it's okay. Um, So we have this precious human birth. We have these teachings of the Buddha. We have this chance um, to practice, and we have a chance to be grateful to be grateful for this.
I'm just choosing where to go. Don't worry. It's so horrible to watch somebody if you think they're all nervous and you just feel their nervousness. But there's um, the richness of your questions and the teachings that I have found in response to them. Um, I need to choose where to go. So, okay. So the Buddha said that our job, as we appreciate this precious human birth and the presence of these teachings, um, our job is to understand them. Our job is to realize them in our own lives. And our job is to look at the suffering that we do have, to face it full on, which you have all been doing here, uh, to understand the cause. Now, this is something, excuse me, this is something that I want to just take up for a moment because When I would hear that the cause of suffering is desire or wanting or grasping, I would find that very depressing. Earlier in my practice, my teacher, my first teacher, he would say to us, just put it all down. Just put it down. But the truth is, I didn't want to put it down. I felt that he didn't understand the complexity and importance of my problems. Mm -hmm. And that by saying, put them down, um, well, he was just asking something that at that time I really didn't want to do. When we look at the Four Noble Truths, for me what has been very helpful is to weave them into these four great um, bodhisattva vows that we take Um, in the Zen tradition, every night we would recite them at the end of retreat. And they, they interweave so beautifully because understanding suffering is like the first vow. We consider all sentient beings. We consider how they suffer. It goes, sentient beings are numberless. We vow to free them all. We used to say, save them all. But my friend Ken McLeod says, free them all. And this is really more accurate. Sentient beings are numberless. They're all of us. They're all around us. The oceans of suffering that exist in this world. Sentient beings are also the many beings who reside in our own hearts. The many beings. The one who is judgmental. The one who's critical. The one who's so loving the one who loves the Dharma, the one who can't wait to leave this retreat and get a turkey sandwich, the one who, you know, all the beings that inhabit our hearts. And how do we free them? We free them by allowing them, giving them the space to simply be who they are, to appear and disappear, which they will do if we don't struggle with them. They will. They will actually come and go if we don't struggle with them. So uh, the first vow, we understand suffering. We want to free this suffering. 
And this intention, this once we realize suffering, we care. We want to do something about it. And this leads to the second vow, which is, it goes like this, greed, hang, anger, and ignorance. Or we could say, attraction, aversion, indifference. They rise endlessly. We experience this all day long, don't we? It's actually a kind of good news. It's not our fault. They simply appear. And when we look deeply at what is the cause of all of this, we see it's our reaction to the suffering. It's our emotional reactivity. And our reaction to the suffering is usually to, as I used to do, um, to want to hang on to it because it's important. Or uh, get rid of it. And when we see this is um, that all this reactivity is what causes it, we actually are motivated to turn our attention within and practice. And the third truth, the end of suffering, the way it links with the third um, vow of how to manifest these teachings in our life is can be translated different ways, but um, we say sometimes, Dharma gates are infinite, I vow to enter them all. Or Dharma doors are countless, I vow to walk through them all. Um, The teachings are vast and fathomless, I vow to understand them all. So this is how our suffering can end to enter an experience, a dharma door. What is a dharma door? Anything that arises in our experience can be that. These hindrances that bother us, you know, are whatever is tormenting us. When we are willing to settle down and be with that experience, to enter it, to learn what it is, how it has its being in our bodies and minds. When we slow into it and enter it, um, then we actually are embracing the Dharma, embracing the path. We see these tormenting experiences as just experience when we're not reacting to them. They're just experience arising and passing away. And when we see that, we actually can drop into a deeper experience of our life. And this is so much um, where our humanness can touch the Dharma. Somebody asked a question about how do we work with our sexuality. And in retreat, it seems simple because we take you know, this vow that we aren't going to engage in sexual activity. But it's kind of like taking the vow of silence. We agree that we're going to keep noble silence. But does that stop you from talking in your head mm-hmm. all day long, composing messages and planning what you'll say to this person or that person, right? We do this. So we take this vow not to engage in sexual activity. But does that stop you 
from undressing people and thinking about their bodies and having different experiences with them in your mind from time to time, if not all day long, but from time to time, <laughs> occasionally. We do this, don't we? So can we um, relax our grip on this too? And how do we relate to this aspect of our being? And how does this become a Dharma door? We, by looking at you know, the emotions and the emotional reactivity, we understand the truth of suffering. And uh, how can these thoughts and feelings become a Dharma door? I think, first of all, if we can just understand the naturalness, just as the sun radiates light, and this is natural, it radiates warmth, just as wisdom radiates compassion, it's the nature of our bodies to radiate sexual energy and warmth at different times, more or less intense, but it's the nature of our bodies. And it's the nature of us when we feel close to somebody or connected to somebody. That will be one dimension, possibly, of what we feel with or for them. And so how we relate to this innerly is to try not to make an object of either the sexual energy or the fantasy or of each other. to not try to suppress or shut down these feelings, but to honor them as the movement of life, life itself in the form of this energy, which we call sexual. And to not go into the habitual reactions that we know so well, um, because sometimes these energies can arise as a way of handling loneliness or even anger or um, boredom or... But can these energies just be felt as like sparks of sensation at the intersection of the mind with the body? You know, this is where our minds meet our bodies or our hearts meet our bodies. And it can then be a Dharma door to an energy of awakening. Um, It can be delightful when we're not, you know, compelled, that sense of being stuck and attached and compelled and obsessing and round and round and round comes from usually our our struggling with it. Um, Shinsen Young, a wonderful teacher who taught, he lived and taught in Los Angeles for about 25 years. He still teaches in L.A. a lot, but he lives in Vermont now. He created a formula, um, suffering plus resistance, no, pain plus resistance to it equals suffering. I never could do math. Pain plus (laughs) resistance to it equals suffering. And then I heard a variation of this, which is um, impermanence plus clinging equals suffering. You know, when we're clinging to something that is by nature fleeting, it creates suffering, it sticks around. Um, Or it doesn't, but either way, we suffer. So 
these instinctive energies, I'm just using sexual energy as an example because somebody asked about it and often it doesn't so much get talked about. It's almost like, um, I don't know, maybe the idea if we talk about it, it would be amplified or like that expression. My mother used to have an expression. She'd say, that's like telling a child, don't put beans up your nose. They're going to want to try it. (laughs) You know, I don't know how many have had to take a child to the emergency room because, you know, something up there. Anyway, um, I think we can talk about this without necessarily being afraid of it. Um, This is part of our maturing in the practice, to know that, um, first of all, thinking is different from doing, and secondly, uh, this too is impermanent. Uh, Can we see these energies as just the play of body and breath? Can we see how our breath shifts and examine that? Can we see that this longing is at its heart, a longing to be connected, to be whole, to be um, deeply connected with all of life? Can we know this and realize this deeply and breathe in the truth of it and just see it's like a kind of... um, aliveness or living, I read this phrase, living electricity, you know, isn't that beautiful? It's like the living electricity of our aliveness and we can feel it quite subtly as um, that longing for intimacy with all of life, all beings. Um, One uh, mentor of mine in therapy, it was around the time of beginning to really um, respect all the different gender orientations and not just say everything assuming that it's, you know, heterosexual couples and really cleaning up our language. And, and he said about somebody, I liked this, he said, she's omnisexual. <laughs> and I thought, That's what we should all be, omnisexual. Transform that energy into resonance with everything. Everything. And really attend to that resonance um, as a way, this is a way of entering experience. Um, And so this is part of the the entering, that third noble truth where suffering stops because we've fully entered an experience. And when we fully enter an experience, there's a different kind of knowing of it and of ourselves in it. We realize we're actually not separate from it. Like Wes was saying, the knowing arises simultaneously with the experience and we can begin to step back into the knowing of it um, and the experience becomes again just that the vehicle for our knowing for our awareness for our consciousness itself it's more exciting than i can actually convey to you in words this experience but it's just like 
these doors, then all these doors, all these experiences reveal themselves as awakening. Because what is awakening? What do we awake to? Awaken to? We awaken to the content of this moment, whatever it might be. Whether it's seeing, being touched by the light of seeing, or hearing. And when we listen, we can actually hear space, especially if it's a distant sound. We can hear space, just this ocean of space. Or tasting as just the, um, the joy, <laughs> the illumination of tasting. Smelling as knowing something. <laughs> I know what that is, right? Uh, and touching as just that aliveness. Um, and then just the knowing itself. When we know our experience as arising appearance, things that appear in our consciousness, we actually are freeing our experience to be just what it is. It doesn't have to be what we want it to be. It doesn't have to not be what we don't want it to be. It can be just what it is. And that's a great freedom. So many beautiful teachings and places to go. I think just I want to try and keep it more um, grounded in actual experience. I like these um, very ordinary human examples, like let's look at um, eating for a moment and how there's so much dharmic truth in that experience too. Um, there is a teacher of the Cambodian wonderful uh, monk, Mahagosananda, who died, I guess, about a year and a half ago um, in March. And he used to teach, he had taught really simply. And one of his teachings, he would look at the Dharma through the whole metaphor of eating and digestion. The Buddha probably did this too, but I don't have the reference for that. I just have um, Mahagosananda. And And so this becomes a question of how we nourish ourselves and how we feed ourselves metaphorically. What do we take in? But also, actually, when we're eating, how can we see the truth of the Dharma, of um, these Four Noble Truths? When we're eating, let's just... Four is too complicated. Let's stick with three, the three marks of existence. And maybe let's focus just on impermanence. Um, But uh, we were talking about this in one of our groups today. 
when you eat. Try this. Take a bite of food and you feel the appearance of that sensation when you put it in your mouth and chew it. There's that explosion of deliciousness, hopefully, but at least flavor. And it's usually very pleasant. And we chew and then we swallow. And after we swallow, it's gone. Now, usually we don't get to experience that moment of it being gone because the fork is loaded and it's, you know, it's ready to go, right? Or the spoon. And we keep it that way. We keep it going, you know, just like the thoughts in the mind, right? Becoming this and becoming that. Because God forbid we should have a moment where there's nothing happening. So we keep it going in our minds and we keep it going when we're eating. Um, and even if we're eating mindfully and really savoring and chewing slowly, and we still, you'll notice, you still kind of, it's there, ready, the next one. It just, you're just coming more slowly, but it's right there. So what happens if we experiment with, not for the sake of slowing down, that is just too deadly boring, but what happens if we let ourselves have the experience of swallowing and the food is gone? What if we stay with that moment of goneness and just see what it's like? And just see what it's like when an experience ends, when something vanishes. Oh, intellectually, we know it's changed form and it's in our stomachs and it's becoming broken down into this and that and the other thing, but it's actually gone from what it was in our mouth. The experience of our body is what we're interested in here. The actual sense, felt sense of things and our connection to that. Uh, So much dharmic truth in this arising of a bite of food and the experience of that. It's born, it has its delicious being, and then it vanishes. And so we can use even this simple experience of eating to uh, see so much anicca, so much impermanence. Somebody was saying, I understand about it, but I don't really realize it. Wait till breakfast. You can realize it right then and there. You can realize it. Um, I've been reading a book. I just couldn't stop reading it. It was so beautiful and intense. And then I was talking about it with the other teachers. But I was saying it was difficult, in a way, reading it because I would stay up too late. I would read it at night, and I couldn't stop. And, and then one of my colleagues said, well, can I see it? And so I gave it to him. Then he started staying up and not being able to sleep. Um, And I thought I could just 
talk to for a moment, just pick up a little bit, just a little bit of um, some, a few of these links <laughs> of how, of dependent arising, which is really just how things happen, how one thing leads to another. Because this happens, that happens. That's what that teaching is. The Buddha was very focused on it because, in general, he was just very focused on... um, (laughs) He was very focused, yes. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) But he was also focused on, um, you know, healing suffering. And he was really moved by the suffering of beings and his own and devoted his focus to understanding how it happens. And um, so I wanted to see if I could use this story, Nando Parado's story, to just look at a few of these links and then end my talk with that. The problem is, oh, here it is, okay. So... um, in his case, he really understood the suffering that he was having because he was one of the soccer players, the Uruguay soccer players, who went down with the plane. This was, there was a book about this that I read years ago called Alive, and I think they made a movie of it, uh, somebody told me, but I didn't see that movie. But basically, the plane crashed in the middle of the Andes, and... Uh, they went through a really horrible ordeal of... It it was so strange because, you know, the plane hit a ridge and its wings fell off and then the tail fell off. But the whole body of the plane kind of continued like a guided missile. You know, you can imagine what was going on inside. And then it, just the angle of the glacier that it landed on happened to be such that it then um, it skidded very fast and it did finally stop in a snowbank and many people were injured and killed, but many people survived. And then it's, his story is the story of what happened to the survivors and how a few of them actually were rescued. Um, And the part of the story that struck me, because it was so much about his humanness, he attributes what helped him to survive was his love of his father, because his mother and his sister died in the first impact of the crash. And he was tormented. Well, his sister didn't die right at first, but she died a week later. And his, he was tormented by imagining his father's anguish at all of them being lost and the plane going, obviously having gone down. And, um, and he, over the course of the ordeal, would ima- remember stories that his father told him. They were stories about uh, determination and his own determination. And he just was somebody who loved his dad. And he, it became his motivation to survive, that he wanted to be able for his father to see him again and to see his father again. And so he was very clear about his intentions and what was motivating him. 
The problem is so often we're not so clear about our intentions and what motivates us. And that ignorance or blindness about that or denial about that is um, a big source of suffering because then, you know, the intentions aren't so clear. And um, often when we don't understand our suffering, we might try to fix it in ways that have nothing to do with what causes it, like try to get our partner to behave differently or um, something, you know, that really isn't to do with our own emotional reactivity. Anyway, he was very clear that his intention to survive was based on the love of his father. And we know that intention shapes the way that we attend to focus on experience. So Nando, when he came to almost the end of his journey, he was climbing out of the mountains without oxygen, without crampons or cables or Gore-Tex or, you know, without anything, really. And so there are descriptions of how he climbed an incredibly steep peak. And the way that he did it was through this human love. What could be more human than loving your dad or your parents? This human love which fueled his intention to survive and then his attention to every step. His attention, he couldn't afford. And anybody who's rock climbed in a dangerous place, you know, some of you have probably done things like this, extreme sports where you can't afford a moment of inattention. Um, So that's the level of attentiveness that he had. His whole body centered and present and mobilized and activated. His intention shaping how he attended and then how he attended shaping um, that activation, that alertness of all his senses. How he senses things shaping his connection to the experience, his actual connection to the mountain, to the ice, to the rock, to the feet. And that contact or connection with the world and how he felt about it, how he felt about it. Now, the feeling is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. In his case, the feelings were intensely unpleasant. Not having enough air, not having enough strength, not having enough um, of anything, really, uh, and yet continuing. The feeling, in his case, didn't turn into, he wasn't caught by the unpleasantness. If he had been, he could not have moved forward. If he had said, this is unpleasant, I'm going to turn back. Or, this is unpleasant, I think I'll go to bed. Or, this is, he was tempted to go to sleep, to just let himself drift into frozenness, you know. He was deeply tempted to rest and freeze to death. 
because his experience was so unpleasant. But this is the place of freedom for us. It's so powerful when we see the unpleasantness or the pleasantness and we decide to continue anyway. We go anyway where we've intended to go. And in his case, he uh, actually was able to find his way out. And it's just a much longer story than... but. Um, now uh, he goes around and speaks and the way that I connected with him was actually at I was teaching at a conference it was a business conference and about leadership and he tells his story he never mentions teamwork or you know he doesn't mention the lessons he just tells the story but we can all relate to it because of being Sangha here together and um, the caring that we see all around us uh, here with and for each other. So I just want to read you a couple of passages to close. Um, One of the things that happened was when he got, he had built up in his mind that this one huge mountain was really at the edge, because of something the co-pilot had said when the plane was going down. He thought it was the edge of the Andes, and when he got to the top of the mountain, he would see green and valleys on the other side. When he got to the top of the mountain, what he saw was endless more mountains, Mm -hmm. and realized that they would die. And... uh, And so this is what happened when he saw that. Um, He had his uh, sinking and his certainty that he would die and um, felt despair and hopelessness and was simply staggered with that. And then he said, he imagined the strong embrace of his father in all of his hopelessness and despair So this is a moment of metta. He evokes love. He said, My love for my father swelled in my heart, and I realized, despite the hopelessness of my situation, that the memory of him filled me with joy. It staggered me. The mountains, for all their power, were not stronger than my attachment to my father. They couldn't crush my ability to love. I felt a moment of calm and clarity. And in that clarity of mind, I saw that um, the opposite of death is not merely living. It's not courage or faith or human will. It's love. And he said, in that brief magical moment, all my fears lifted. And I knew that I would not let death control me. I would walk through the God-forsaken country that separated me from my home with love and hope in my heart. I would walk until I had walked all the life out of me. And when I fell, I would die that much closer to my father. These thoughts strengthened me, and with renewed hope I began to search for pathways through the mountains. I'm not going to tell you what happens. 
<laughs> but I want to read you one more thing. He said, um, the true lesson of my ordeal is that it wasn't cleverness or courage or any kind of competence or savvy that saved us. It was nothing more than love, our love for each other, for our families, and for the lives we wanted so desperately to live. Our suffering in the Andes had swept away everything trivial and unimportant. Each of us realized with a clarity that is hard to describe that the only crucial thing in life is the chance to love and be loved. The 16 of us who were lucky enough to return to our lives will never forget this. No one should forget this. So I think here is where that joining of the humanness and the Dharma, that suffering in their humanness, the way that it swept away everything trivial, everything unimportant, fell away. They weren't preoccupied with their small suffering selves. Oh, of course they were at times, but that isn't what saved their lives. They encountered such intensity that all they cared about, really, um, and this is what saved them, was um, their loved ones helping each other and the Dharma, the truth of no self, we talk about dissolving and the fears of dissolving. It's actually very blissful to dissolve. Um, but we talk about uh, no self as though it's some kind of dry thing, a little bit, you know, emptiness, maybe very um, kind of a cool, spacious, empty feeling. But what is there when everything else falls away, when everything trivial and unimportant, when we are really empty of all of our self-concerns? What is left? So to conclude, well, you'll find out what is left, but he's telling you what was left for him. He says, To everyone to whom I'm bonded by suffering and by the joys of disappointments of life, that is, to everyone who reads this, all of us, I want you to know I'm no wise man. Every day shows me how little I know about life and how wrong I can be. But there are things I know to be true. I know I will die. In the Andes, we lived heartbeat to heartbeat. Every second of life was a gift, glowing with purpose and meaning. I've tried to live that way ever since, and it's filled my life with more blessings than I can count. I urge you to do the same. They had this kind of motto that they would say to each other when it was just so horrible, things they had to do to survive, and they were in such terror. And they would just say, one more breath, one more breath. As we used to say in the mountains, breathe, breathe again. With every breath, you are alive. After all these years, this is still the best advice I can give you. Savor your existence. Live every moment. Do not waste a breath.
So let's sit for a moment. So enjoy your walking every single step. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.